Uh, what is faith? Uh, now, one could understand having the belief that there is a God and having faith in God is one and the same thing, two different ways of referring to the same mental state. So let me call that the faith is belief that theory. And I'm going to argue that faith is in part a matter of belief that, belief in God, and uh, the appropriate belief that, little to God being the appropriate belief that, the faith in God. But faith in God isn't just a matter of believing that there is a God, there's something more important. Before I can do that, I need to use two arguments, two arguments that people sometimes use to argue that faith doesn't have anything at all to do with beliefs that. And they both start from the undoubted fact that the monotheistic religions commend faith, one is praised for having faith, and blamed if one doesn't have it, at least in some circumstances. The faith is to believe that theory has to accommodate the fact that faith is commended, and in doing so, the faith is to believe that theory needs to commit itself to two claims. Firstly, the faith is belief that theory is committed to its being good to believe that there is a God. Only if it were good to believe that there is a God, it would make sense to commend someone to the extent that they require and maintain that belief. Secondly, the faith is belief that theory is committed to its being the case that whether or not one believes that there is a God is something which one can oneself affect by an act or acts of the will. Only if it was in, within one's own power to acquire and maintain the belief that there's a God, it would make sense to commend someone for acquiring and maintaining that belief. And one can cast doubt on uh, one or both of these two claims and thus cast doubt on the faith of this belief that theory. So, firstly, I'm going to look at reasons for thinking that faith is belief that theory can't be right, between that reason that theory can't be right, because belief that there's a God doesn't seem to be even on the truth of faith in such a great uh, state to accord oneself into. Now, if we accept Parche and Utilitarians and certain others, that believing the truth is in itself a good thing, but it seems that we'll have to accept that if there is a God, believing that there is a God, we believe in the truth. Indeed, we believe in perhaps uh, the most important thing uh, to which the human mind can direct itself. But is it possible to maintain that it is good a thing, as faith is undoubtedly perceived to be by the adherents of Judaism and Christianity and Islam? If it wasn't, then that would be a blow to the faith is belief that theory. Of course, it wouldn't be a fatal blow. It could be that the theory was right, and it was just that the appearance of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam had a rather overinflated view of how good it was to believe that there was a God. So, an argument against this being a very good thing to believe that there was a God can't prove that the faith is believed that the theory is wrong. At best, it can show that it can't be rationally subscribed to by Jews, Christians, and Muslims. They're not prepared to downgrade their estimation how good a thing it is to believe that there was a God. Let's see if we can find an argument which will enable us to do with this. Uh, there's a village in Devon called Sprat, and I'll hazard that not many of you believe that before I mentioned it. But let's suppose I showed you sufficient evidence, ordnance, survey maps, and the like to convince you of uh, the existence of this village. If we accept, then, partaking to the tenants and certain others, that true beliefs are in themselves good things to have, well, we'd have to say that I would benefit from you to at least some extent by giving you this true belief that there's a village in Devon called Sprout. But by how much would I have benefited you? How great a good would I have given you? Not much, you might reasonably think. I would have benefited you all the more had I given you that greater thanks. So having the true belief that there's a village in Devon called Sprout is, I suggest, a good thing for you, but it's not very much of a good thing. Well, I think that if there's a God, then belief that there's a God would be a much better thing than belief that there's a village in Devon called Sprout. On the faith is belief that theory would have to be quite a bit better to justify all the commendation that faith receives in the monotheistic religions. Well, someone plausibly uh, could suggest that if there's a God, then he's more 
important than religious endeavor on some absolute scale. You say there's a God, then believe him, because a God is a better thing than believing that there's a village endeavor called Swat. And that seems plausible enough. But just how much better than believing that there's a village endeavor called Swat can the Feds consistently maintain it is to believe that there's a God? <coughs> If there's a God, then he could make his existence a lot more obvious to us than he has done. Indeed, if there's a God, he can reveal himself to each of us in a direct and overwhelming fashion, convincing us without any shadow of doubt that he exists. To the extent that it was a good thing to believe that God exists, well, God would have good reason to bring about by these means, or others, that we believe that he exists. So the fact that many people don't believe that he exists is, one might argue, good reason, even on the truth of theism, to suppose it can't actually be accurate to believe that he does exist. So the argument goes, the Feds can't, in consistency, believe that it's actually that good to believe that there's a God. And thus, if the Feds clings to the claim of faith as something vague to have, he or she will have to abandon any kind of faith which equates having that faith with having the belief that there's a God. He or she will have to abandon the faith that is believed that theory. Well, I don't think this argument uh, quite works, uh, but I don't think it's entirely that false either. But as I argued in my discussion of the problem of evil, sometimes our order goods demand lower order evils. If you knew with absolute certainty, without even a shadow of a doubt, that on your death you'd be transported to an eternal life in paradise, you couldn't display courage in the face of death, or indeed consider laying down your life for your friends as at least potentially a sacrifice. A certain amount of what we might call epistemic distance from the truth of theism is needed if you want to display its virtues. And there's also some plausibility in the suggestion that to the extent that God allows his existence and character to become manifest to finite agents, he detracts from those agents' freedom, moral freedom, unless he increases that agent's natural tendency to evil, which I'm going to call depravity, to compensate. This is because there's some plausibility in suggestions such as the following. If we suppose one's depravity to be constant between the cases, one wouldn't be as free to run a red light if one knew that a policeman was sitting in front of the passenger seat of one's car, as if one thought oneself alone and unobserved. And if one knew that one's other passengers were the Bishop of Oxford, the Queen, and to move up yet further in my own personal pattern, Richard Swinburne, well, one's freedom to run a red light would be reduced still more. So if that sort of thought is correct, and of course it's rather sketchy, then it seems we perhaps could extrapolate from it and say that if one knew that one had an omnipotent, omniscient, and perfectly just God, figuratively speaking, in one's car as well, one's freedom to run the red light would be eliminated entirely. We need epistemic between us and God, epistemic distance, excuse me, between us and God, in order for us to have free choice between good and evil. Or rather, we need a suitable balance to be struck between our epistemic distance and our depravity and our tendency to evil. Thus, the more uncertainty there is about the existence of God, the more it's possible for us to be naturally good people who still have a free choice between right and wrong. It's not impossible to suggest then that it's good for us if we're naturally good, but it's good for us if we have free choices, and that these goods might be so good for us that, in combination, it's worth our while missing out on the good of knowing with absolute certainty that there's a God, at least for the duration of our earthly lives, if we're going to get that good uh, in the afterlife, as I have previously argued in one day, so we will. So for these reasons, I am inclined to reject the first argument for thinking that uh, the faith is believed that thing is right, i.e. the argument that as faith is so highly commended, it has to be something that's very good to have, in fact that we don't all believe it's a God, and if it was a God, it means we make us all believe that it exists, is a reason to suppose that it actually can't be that good to believe that it's a God. I've argued that my God might have good reasons for allowing us not to believe that he exists, even if it would be very good for us to believe that he did exist, just as he might have good reasons 
to allow us not to be perfectly good towards one another, even if it would be very good indeed, of course, for us to be perfectly good towards one another. <clears throat> the second reason the one might advance for rejecting the faith is belief that theory is that beliefs that are not under the direct control of the will, and thus one might argue that having or lacking of them is not the sort of thing for which one could be reasonably praised or praised. <coughs> so allow me to consider this argument at greater length. I'll give £50 to anyone in this room who can make themselves believe, even for a moment, that they are currently in this village in Devon called Sprat. Okay? That's the offer. Do you want to believe that you're in Sprat? Well, very probably, if you believe the offer, and uh, the answer to that would be yes. £50 would be quite useful, and a fleeting false belief, uh, which is all I'm requiring of you to win the £50, a fleeting false belief that you're in this village in Devon wouldn't be too inconvenient. It's orientated for a moment or two, it only has to be fleeting, you could then be back in the room as it were. So why is it that you can't make yourself believe that you're in Sprat when I put this incentive in front of you? Is it just a quirk of your psychology that you can't do it? In other words, is it logically contingent that beliefs that are not under the direct control of the world? It is not. Your beliefs that are your beliefs about what the world is like, and if you chose to acquire a particular belief that, simply because you get some money as a result of, uh, uh, of doing so, then you know that you're choosing to try to acquire a belief that by a mechanism other than one that made it more likely that you were acquiring a true belief rather than a false one. Are you by a mechanism other than one that in some way put your beliefs that in touch with the way the world really was. But if you knew that that was how you had to acquire a particular mental state, you couldn't really think of whatever mental state you got yourself into as a result of that process as a belief that. You couldn't think of it uh, as related in the right way to how the world was, and your beliefs that have to be mental states which you believe are related uh, to the way the world is in a way that makes it more likely to be true than false. You can't regard some mental occurrence of yours as the belief that you're in spite, whilst you realise that you have no truth tracking reason for that mental occurrence. For you can only take as your beliefs that mental occurrences which you take to have uh, some truth tracking relation to the world. That's what makes the mental occurrences belief that the world is one way rather than uh, some other type of mental occurrence and imagining that the world is that way So, beliefs that cannot be acquired by direct acts of the world. That's a logical uh, implication of nature. Does this kill off the faithless belief that theory then? No, it doesn't, because there are all sorts of things which cannot be acquired by direct acts of the world, but which one can nevertheless be commended for having acquired. For example, knowledge of the philosophy of religion. You can't just decide, I'm going to acquire knowledge of the philosophy of religion, sit there, put yourself to do so, and make it happen. You have to go to lectures, you have to read books, you have to think about the issues, most importantly of all, have tutorials, and so on. But then you can't acquire knowledge of the philosophy of religion by direct acts of the world. It doesn't make it unreasonable for the university to commend you for having acquired it, or indeed censor you in violence if you show you haven't acquired it. Beliefs that about the philosophy of religion then can be acquired by indirect acts of the world. You can acquire them by attending lectures, reading, thinking about things, and so on. And you can, uh, and by, by willing yourself directly to do this, you can be willing yourself to acquire relevant beliefs that about the philosophy of religion. Having found no reason then to reject the belief that theory, I want to turn to consider another view on the nature of faith, what might be called the faith is belief in theory. And I'm going to argue that we in fact should believe in a composite view that faith is uh, all belief in and belief in that. Okay. 
Consider the following sentence, which I had each of us would believe. I believe that Assad holds the presidency of Syria, but I don't believe in Assad's holding the presidency of Syria. That sentence makes sense. In fact, not only does it make sense, it's true and as I said, that is true of each of you, it's true. What am I saying about myself when I answer it? Well, I'm saying that although I believe that a certain state of affairs, Assad's holding his presidency exists, I do not believe that it should exist. Believing that is an intellectual commitment, as I say, so it's a world as a matter of fact is, whereas believing in is a moral or existential commitment, a trusting in one person's course of action or set of ideals rather than another. And I find myself unable to make a moral existential trusting commitment to Assad's presidency because of his actions against his people. And thus, although I'm aware that his presidency exists, I do not to any extent uh, believe in it. It would be inaccurate to say that whilst I believe that it exists very firmly, I instantly disbelieve in it. So belief that doesn't require belief in, and believe that something exists and actually disbelieve in it very strongly. Uh, does belief in require belief that? Can we believe in something whilst not believing anything about it? One cannot, I suggest, for the simple reason that one's belief in has to have some sort of belief that associated with it. To act as the handle by which it grabs the thing that one's believing in and makes sure it's that thing one's believing in rather than something else. I cannot make a commitment of this sort to something one has no beliefs about. Otherwise, how could one know it was that which one was making a commitment to rather than its opposite? How could it really be that it was that which one was making a commitment to rather than its opposite? So there's that asymmetry. Belief that does not require any belief in to an extent, but belief in requires at least some belief that. And that's why it strikes me if you're attracted to the faithless belief in theory, we'll have to combine it with the view that faith is belief that. Belief in requires belief that. And thus, if faith is a matter of belief in, then it must also be a matter of belief that. Given this, uh, we can see it won't then be possible to believe in God without believing that there's a God. Even if it may be possible to believe that there's a God and yet not believe in him. Of course, believing that there's a God, a being who is, amongst other things, omnipotent, perfectly good, whilst not believing in him, i.e. whilst not making a moral or existential commitment to him, must be irrational. But then finite agents can be, for at least a time and to at least an extent, irrational, sometimes willfully so. And that can happen, of course, in religious matters as everywhere else in life. And on Thursday, happening, it's happening in religious matters as, of course, it's happening in the most dangerous area. One can believe that it's God and yet prioritise other things above him. Uh, one's own religion and its trappings is perhaps the easiest thing uh, to have a misplaced faith in. And the name for this tendency is idolatry, whether it takes out as its object or something else. And idolatry is, of course, on Faison, uh, the worst sin possible, for it lies at the root of all other sins. So faith in God, I'd argue, is a combination of believing that as God and believing in God. It's not possible to believe in God whilst not believing that he exists, but it is possible, albeit supremely irrational, to believe that he exists and yet not believe in him. On the truth of theism, not believing in God and believing in evidence to lead to idolatry, which is making one's ultimate moral or existential commitment to something less worthy than God, putting one's ultimate trust in something less trustworthy than one could have put one's trust in. And faith in God is the opposite of idolatry, and it's no surprise then that, from a theistic point of view, one is commended for having faith. So that's the nature of faith for us Now, I want to look now at what level of belief that is required before one can have faith in God. And I'm going to argue that as long as you believe it's more probable than not that there's a God, that's sufficient for you to believe in him and thus be said to have 
and faith you don't have to sort of raise the probability to 95% or even faith in
just how unreasonable was it depends in part on where between 50 and 100 probability action falls, but it might also depend on something else. And I want to conclude then by considering a rather unusual argument uh, for it being more reasonable to have faith in God than not. And I'm going to approach this argument somewhat uh, indirectly, so please uh, bear with me. Uh, consider the following. If you find yourself at a horse race one day and you're choosing where to place your one pound bet, for some reason you have to place a bet, so no reasonable objection to the gambling, as I say, and It's literally a two horse race between horse A and horse B. Horse A and horse B look pretty much as likely to win as one another, from the form, from the odds of bookmakers offering, and so on. And so you approach the tip of the bookmaker and ask him what odds he's given. He tells you something rather strange. He's not offering odds as such. He can, however, offer you the following choices. If you put your money on horse A and horse A wins, he'll give you one million and one pounds. So that's him taking your one pound off you initially, you'll be a hundred pounds up net on the deal. If you put it on horse A and horse A loses, he'll have taken your pound off you and you'll get nothing in return. So you'll be a pound down. If you put it on horse B and horse B wins, he'll have taken your pound off you and he'll give it back so you can have evens. If you put it on horse B and horse B loses, He'll have taken your power off you, and you'll get nothing in return, so you'll be a pound down again. Furthermore, if you put it on horse B and horse B loses, he'll come down and find you and punch you in the face repeatedly. Rather odd, I know this my example, so I can do as you choose. If you look on the hand, you'll see those chaos. <coughs> okay, you look back at the two horses, you look again at their form, their jockeys, you name it, and so on. You still can't tell which is more likely to win. You have to place a bet, so what would it be rational for you to put your money on? Well, surely the answer is that it would be rational for you to put your money on horse A, even though you have no more truth trapping reason to believe that horse A will win rather than that horse B will win. You have reason provided by the payoffs that the bookmakers set up to act as you would do if you did have truth trapping reason to put your money on horse A. But if you put it on horse A, then worst case scenario you would be a pound down, and best case scenario you would be a million pounds up. If you put it on horse B, then worst case scenario, you'll be repeatedly punched in the face, and best kind of pound down, and best case scenario, you'll come out even. Now let's alter the situation. Again, you find yourself at a horse race. It's a two-horse race, again, between horse A and horse B. You study the form and so on, and you have no more reason for doing so to believe that horse A will win than you do to believe that horse B will win. No more reason to believe that horse B will win than you do to believe that horse A will win either. So, so far, it's exactly the same as the previous example. You approach the bookmaker, ask him what else he's given. And he tells you something even stranger that he told you, uh, than he, what he told you before. You can't place a bet on which horse will win. You have instead to acquire a belief that concerning which horse will win. There are no odds but the following pairs. If you believe that horse A will win, and horse A does win, then he'll give you one million pounds. If you believe that, horse A will win, and horse A doesn't win, he'll give you no money at all. If you believe that, horse B will win, and horse B does win, he'll give you no money either. And if you believe that, horse B will win, and horse B does not win, he'll come out and repeatedly punch you in the face. Again, it's not that I'll show you what. You are bound to test the beliefs that are not under the direct control of the will, and as you have no more truth direct and reason to believe that horse A will win, no uh, other than the other, but there's no way you can acquire a belief that concerning um, that horse winning or the people. Now, but you're about to say that to him, but preemptively, the bookmaker points to a hypnosis 
who set up his school next to the book makers and is offering his services free of charge. The hypnotist tells you that he can hypnotize you to believe anything, and of course then remove from you the memory that the only reason you got into that mental state is because you went to see him, so it will maintain itself as a belief fact. He tells you, this hypnotist, that you've never been disappointed by his services in the past. Well, that's because I've never met you before, you say. Ah, oh, that's what you think, he says, and points to a photograph on the wall of his booth, one of many other sites that says previously satisfied customers. And the photograph shows you smiling poorly while shaking hands with this man. You have no application, of course, what you can So what would it be rational for you to do now? Surely the answer is that it would be rational for you to go to the hypnotist and get him to hypnotize you into believing that all say is going to win. Just as rational as it was for you to put your money on all say in the first scenario. So it's as rational for you to get uh, the hypnotist to give you a belief that all say will win the second. Okay, now I turn to consider a situation where we have no more reason to believe that there's a God than we have to believe that there's not, and no more reason to believe that there's not than to believe that there is, what we might call the 50-50 position. Now, I argue that isn't the actual position, we've got slightly more reason to believe that there's a God than we have to believe that there's not, at least slightly. Uh, but let's turn to consider a situation where that, those arguments hadn't worked and it had actually come out 50-50. So what should we believe? Either you're going to believe that there's a God, or you're not going to believe that there's a God. It's a two-horse race. To make it a two-horse race, you'll notice that I put believing that there's a God on one side, and uh, neither believing that there's a God nor believing that there's a not, not a God, in with believing that there's not a God on the other side. So in traditional terminology, I put theism on one side and agnosticism in with atheism on the other side. And so far about in this way, uh, there are only two possibilities, so it's a two-horse race. Either you believe that there's a God or you don't. Okay. Given what I've argued previously, that it's possible to believe that there's a God and not believe in him. It's obviously irrational not to believe in him if you've got to say to believe in that he exists. I can say that for, for rational people it's going to be a two-horse race between having faith in God and not having faith in God. If you're in a 50-50 position then, by definition you don't have any truth direct reason to believe that there's a God, hence go on rationally to put faith in him, uh, more than you do to believe that there's not a God, hence go on not to put faith in him, but put faith in something else. <coughs> But perhaps there are some non-truth directed reasons to believe that there's a God and hence to have faith in him. Or to believe that there's not, hence to have, not to have faith in him. Let's consider these possibilities in order. Firstly then, suppose that you do believe that there's a God and being rational, you resolve to go on to believe in him. That, I've established, is equivalent to your having faith in God. Having faith in God is something which almost all the adherents of the various monotheistic religions are agreed. Increases your chances of getting into heaven and enjoying an eternity of bliss. That's the traditional uh, potential upside of having faith in God then, and increased chance of an infinite bliss. The traditional potential downside is that you, um, you may miss out on a few uh, worldly pleasures. Not all religions would agree with that, but if you become a Jew or Muslim, you'll miss out on the pleasures of bacon and sandwiches, for example. If you become a Christian, perhaps you'll spend your Sunday mornings in church, rather than in bed listening to live entertainment shows on radio 4. In short, it doesn't seem that you'll miss out on much with the greatest respect to uh, sandwiches and apple or maybe even radio 4. So, having faith in God is rather like believing that horse pain will be in my previous example. If your horse comes home, if there is a God, you're more likely to get a reward that is far greater than your statement. If you have faith in God, or visit a God, if the other horse comes home, as it were, you lose your state money, which wasn't much anyway. Now let's consider the possibility that there is a God and you don't have faith in him. Almost all the adherents of the major monotheistic religions are agreed that not having faith in God is a pretty surefire way of ending up in hell, which is an eternity of torment. That's the potential downside. 
What's the potential upside? Well, you may gain a few more worldly pleasures, perhaps, for example, bacon sandwiches here and there, or listening to those radio programs, but the upside is not much. Nobody's biggest regrets on their deathbeds are that they didn't have that many bacon sandwiches, or they listen to enough editions of Blue Sands, or that, or that program where they go from the labels, you know what. Anyway, if there's a God and you don't have faith in him, you stand to lose infinitely more than you stand to gain. Not having faith in God is then like believing that Paul's been already. So, if you were starting from the 50-50 position, having faith in God offers you what you must view as a 50-50 chance of increasing your likelihood of infinite bliss, and 50-50 chance of missing out on a few worldly pleasures needlessly. Believing that there's not a God offers you what you must view as a 50-50 chance of increasing your likelihood of uh, infinite torment, and a 50-50 chance of not missing out needlessly on these few worldly pleasures. So, what is it rational for you to do in the circumstances? Of course, there's a sense in which you have to play the odds, but at least when the odds are as far as you can tell even, you surely have to look at the potential gains and losses of your options. Obviously, you have to get yourself to have faith in God. You should start looking for a hypnotist. And you should start looking for one quite quickly, because as someone wise once put it, you never know the day or the hour when your soul will be vulnerable. Death can happen any time, and what can happen any time can happen today, can happen right now. So before I go on to discuss what we should make of this argument, I want to expand a little on the conclusion that it would have us draw. Would it really be a consequence of accepting this argument that we should rush out from the lecture immediately to find a hypnotist who we pay to get us to believe that there's a God, and of course then we pay an extra supplement to make us forget that the only reason we believe that there was a God was because we believed him, and hence for us to be able to maintain that belief that there's a God, and hence by being rational and faith in God. Is this the sort of, uh, sort of constant procedure that we would really be obliged to undertake if we accepted this argument? Well, no, not quite, because there's not alternative to hypnotism. Prayer. If you were to ask those who claim to have faith in God, what single thing it is that sustains them most in their religious faith, I hazard that they would say it was prayer. So rather than rushing out to a hypnotist, one could rush out to a synagogue or a mosque or a church and utter a prayer. And of course, there's no need in actuality to even rush anywhere. In virtue of God's omnipresence, one could just as well say the prayer here. So, what sort of prayer would one utter? Well, the precise words wouldn't matter as long as the content was addressed, addressed to God to the effect that He helped one have faith. If there's a God, then the process of regularly praying to Him in this way will be increasing one's chances of forming a true belief. It will be a true belief. Uh, uh, sorry, directed process. will be a way of gaining knowledge. Of course, if there's no God, then praying to him is a falsity, directed process. But of course, by the time one gets to the stage of believing that it's more probable that there's a God than that there's not, then although one will know that one only believes that there's more because one's been fervently praying, by then one will see this process of fervent prayer as a more probably truth directed process than falsity directed process. So suppose you start to pray every night before you go to sleep, get on your knees, fly your bed, clasp your hands like a little child, or as I sort of imagine those Victorians looking at pictures of little children doing a few things like this, start speaking, addressing your comments to God. Each night you simply pray as follows, God, please have me have faith in you. You start from the 50-50 position, or you start by thinking it's more likely, or sorry, it's as likely that prayer is a truth-directed process as it is uh, that it's not, and as likely that it's not as it is uh, that it is. If it's not a God, then prayer is a truth directed process, quite the opposite. It's a form of self-hypnosis that is likely to induce a false belief. A false belief that won't be too harmful for you to have, but a false belief nonetheless. If there is a God, then that is a, there's a, a God that entails as a God behind this, and indeed all other natural processes. It's showing in this case that the process is a truth directed one. 
After a while doing this, it's perhaps likely that you'll come to the belief that it's slightly more probable than not that there's a God. At this stage, it will be reasonable for you to believe that it's slightly more probable than not that this process, prayer, which is the process forming and maintaining the belief in you, is truth directed. It'll be more reasonable for you to pray a little bit more. And so you'll find yourself locked into what you have to consider to be an epistemically virtuous spiral of prayer, one which ever increases your faith in God. Of course, you could go the other way, you could find uh, yourself locked into what you'll have to think of as an epistemically virtuous spiral of not getting any results, hence rationally concluding that there is a God. But what are we to make of this argument anyway? Which takes its inspiration from Pascal's uh, wager. It might seem that to accept the conclusions of a Pascal wager type argument, you'll have to accept that the possibilities, their probabilities, and the payoffs are more or less as I've suggested. You'll have to believe that it's possible that there's a God, and you'll have to believe that if there is a God and you have faith in him, it's more probably going to increase your chances of getting plus infinity, but it is going to decrease your chances of getting plus infinity relative to not having faith in him. If you thought it was impossible that there was a God, well then Pascal's wager would offer nothing to you. But I argue it's not impossible that there's a God. That's what my first lecture is establishing that coherence of the festive concept of God were that. So I think I can sweep that way to one side. On the other hand, if you thought that if there's a God, it's just as likely that he'll punish those who have faith in him and reward those who do not, as that he'll reward those who do and punish those who do not. So it's a sort of, you know, God is why are these people pestering me by having faith in me? I prefer to be left alone, and in fact, to the extent they start having faith in me, try to enter into a relationship with me, I'm going to punish them in the afterlife. Um, and to the extent that they ignore me, I'm going to reward them. Okay. Well, if we thought that was more likely uh, to be the case in the traditional testing, you would, again, Pascal's way to kill off you nothing. So if there's a God, which of is more likely out of those two? That he'll reward those who have faith in him, punish those who don't, or that he'll reward those who don't have faith in him, and punish those who do. Well, out of those two, I'd say it's pretty obviously the former, that he'll reward those who have faith in him, and punish those who don't. God is of necessity good, faith in God's belief that there's a God, which is true, if there's a God, that's a true belief. It's good to believe the truth, it's bad to punish people for having done good things. So if there is a God, then he's going to reward and punish people differently after their deaths on the basis of whether or not they've had faith in him. He's not going to punish those who have had faith in him for doing so. He's going to punish anybody on whether or not they've had faith in him issue. He's going to punish those who didn't have faith in him. But of course, even if God does punish people after their deaths for lack of maintaining ultimate faith, perhaps because his perfect goodness requires him to be perfectly just, and those who fail to have faith in him have done something worthy of punishment. Well, anything a finite agent could do in a finite lifetime looks unlikely to be anything worthy of infinite punishment, I'd argue. Perhaps, at most, a couple of hours in hell could be justified, but not an eternity. In other words, it's most implausible to insist that the payoffs for having faith in God and not having faith in God are, as supposed by the Pascal's wages type of argument that I've been discussing today. If one becomes by the, convinced by those sort of considerations that if there is a God, then he's ultimately going to let everyone into heaven anyway, whether or not they have faith in him during their earthly lives, the non-truth direct reason for having faith in God that a Pascal's wager type argument would enjoy on us is weakened. It's weakened, but I don't think it's entirely destroyed, and a weak reason for doing something is still a reason for doing it. If there's a God, then it is, after all, in itself, somewhat, maybe not completely or utterly or worse it is, after all, somewhat bad not to have faith in him. And God's being just means that he could reasonably be expected to punish people, to some extent, after their deaths for the bad things that they've done. Thus, if there is a God, then those who do not have faith in him will, as a result, be in receipt of some 
more punishment gets its powers than those who have that faith. It's not reasonable to believe that this little bit of punishment will be an infinite punishment, but it might be reasonable to think that it will be a punishment great enough to outweigh the inconveniences, if any, that having faith on this earth will bring. And in fact, faith on this earth doesn't bring great inconveniences. Rather, perhaps one might suggest it brings many benefits and take more to Those studies show that the people who have faith in God have generally healthier, happier lives than those who don't. Isn't it very possible to suggest these studies show that having faith in God brings much more happiness than is lost by not having the old bacon sandwich or not listening to loose uh, ends on Radio 4? Now, I don't have time to look at these studies in detail, so our investigation of them will obviously belong more properly to the psychology or perhaps sociology of religion. But if the evidence of those studies was that, putting aside for a moment whether or not there's a God, those who have faith in God benefit in this world to a certain extent, on the handout I call it plus alpha, then as if there is a God, we may be sure they won't suffer from having had faith in him in the next world. So we may say that there is overall a very weak, or a very weak, I mean, is some weak, it depends on alpha, a weak Pascal's wager type, non-truth directed reason for us to have faith in God. If the right sort of evidence is provided by these studies, it will be unreasonable not to have faith in God, even if the argument of my first seven lectures to the effect that the probability of there being a God is somewhere between 50 and 100%, even if that argument wasn't right. Okay, in conclusion, I believe that I've shown that it is unreasonable not to have faith in God. There's no incoherence in the concept of God, problem of evil doesn't give us any reason to suppose that there is no such being. The fine-tuning version of the design argument gives us reason to believe that there is a God, or albeit on premises that are hardly uncontroversial or obviously true. The argument from religious experience and the argument from apparent miracles are arguments which might in principle give us reasons for believing that there is a God. They might in principle, though here I act from the evidence I presented, and I suggest they do in practice because these arguments, the religious experience and miracles want, rest on premises which was not uh, un uh, uh, uncontroversial, or I suggest less controversial and more obviously true than the fine tuning argument. They take it, uh, uh, there's uh, the evidence there, I just gestured to that. Okay. Okay, taken together, these reasons, if I'm right, make it reasonable to believe that it's more probable than not that the God exists, and thus they make it reasonable to have faith in the God. Furthermore, Pascal's wager type argument might, in principle, be one reason for having faith in God. And if I again allow myself to outline the empirical evidence that I have presented by Hazard, that it does, in practice, now do so. Who is it? Myself. Okay, if they're all right, belief that is a God, belief in God, faith in God, all are rationally compelling. And that is my conclusion. I thank you once more for your attention, uh, both this week and previous weeks. And those who wish to leave now may do so, perhaps we should rush to the church or synagogue. Those who wish to stay and ask questions may also be said. Thank you.